joining us for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I am your host, Vic Sage. And for this week, I had originally intended to talk about Howard Scott Warshaw, the iconic game designer during the golden age of Atari. The truth of the matter is, I was called into work at my day job this week, and I was too busy to do the research I needed for the episode. So, instead of skipping a week, I thought we might do something like a special episode of the podcast. In this show, I'll be talking a bit about my early childhood. In particular, my experience with the very first arcade in my neck of the woods, called Games People Play. What makes video games so popular? Well, we search for an answer as we begin a special series on Video Fever, Games People Play. It is a cacophony of sounds from a symphony of electronics. If you're filling your time capsules these days, don't forget a bit of Frogger, or Mousetrap, or Grand Champion, or Pac-Man, or Ms. Pac-Man. That short clip was from the Channel 7 News in Los Angeles. Apparently a five-day series about the popularity of video games entitled Video Fever, Games People Play. It didn't actually have anything to do with the arcade I'm about to talk about. I can still remember the excitement I felt at nine years old. As I jumped out of my father's old beat-up pickup truck, there in front of us was the first arcade to open up in our neck of the woods. It was an early evening in 1981, but the bright pink neon that surrounded the underside of the arcade's awning was the most beautiful color I think I had ever seen. Growing up in a single-parent household meant money was always tight, a fact that my father did his level best to shield from me. Now, that did not mean that I wasn't lucky enough to be treated now and again, which was why we were visiting Games People Play, the very first arcade in Northwest Arkansas. As we headed to that entrance from the parking lot, I could barely contain my excitement, and I know for a fact I was practically dragging my father by the hand in an effort to get inside the arcade just a little quicker. Even from the small walkway that led to the simple double doors of games people play, I could see through the darkened windows some familiar arcade games. The marquees for Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, and Galaxian were a welcome sight, as I was most assuredly a child that had succumbed to Pac-Man fever by that point in time. In what felt like an eternity of slow motion, we finally reached the doors and I yanked one open. It was quite crowded, especially since the building itself was a little small. But as I stood there, I was looking upon an electronic Xanadu that I previously could not have imagined was possible. There was one other element that made my younger self believe he was gazing at the epitome of a video game Xanadu. After opening that door to games people play, a wall of sound rushed to greet me. 
It was the electronic cacophony of around 25 arcade games mixed with the raised voices of the players inside. In addition, the soundtrack to 1980's Xanadu was blasting out over the arcade courtesy of the four speakers that had been installed in each corner of the building. Although I might not have known it at the time, I can assure you that it was the feeling of coming home as I stepped into the arcade and my eyes began to dart to all the new games. It was hands down a glorious time to be both a kid as well as a fan of video games. Now, at the time that games people play open for business, I lived in what was then a small community in northwest Arkansas, as I've previously mentioned, a town that basically built itself around the local university. Arcade games had made the scene a few years earlier, thanks to the nearby bowling alley and the skating rinks. I was lucky enough that at my age, I was finding myself at the ground floor of the dawning of the video game craze. At that local bowling alley, it would finally get to the point where the real reason to visit was to get the chance to play Atari football or fire truck, or best of all, that amazing space war game by Cinematronics. This was shortly, of course, before Taito's Space Invaders began their dominating global assault on the world's supply of spare change and tokens. In all honesty, it was with Space Invaders, that first time I stepped up to it at my local skating rink and inserted my quarter into the game with a group of fellow children behind me, that the video game bug first truly bit me, defiantly refusing to let go 41 years later. I can still remember the amazement I experienced playing that first game, which was over before I knew it, and I skated back to where my father was sitting in the rink's snack bar. I remember babbling about the game, and I kind of didn't stop rambling about the game, even on the drive home. And this behavior continued when he dropped me off to spend the weekend at my grandparents. Before long, I was sporting a Space Invaders t-shirt and doodling the invaders all the time on any available scratch paper I could lay my hands on. I know I've mentioned some of this in previous podcasts, including the Space Invaders episode. I was lucky enough even to receive a beach towel sporting that familiar electronic invader with its arm poised to hurl down a deadly missile, which I believe is actually taken from Space Invaders Deluxe, the 1980 sequel. I held onto that towel and I used it so often that it was literally a rag cloth when my grandmother finally convinced me it was time to let it go. After Space Invaders made the scene, it was Pac-Man that raised the bar. I played plenty of other video games after Space Invaders, and I was lucky enough that in my area there were quite a few electromechanical arcade games to play. I vividly can remember rounding the corner of the local skating rink and seeing a crowd of kids once again. This time, they were jam-packed around this new arcade game. This was the first time I laid eyes on Pac-Man. I never had the opportunity to actually play the game. Although, having said that, it did not stop me from joining that crowd of excited children to watch the game in action. It wasn't until my trip the following weekend that I played Pac-Man for the first time, and it was glorious. It was also, like the first time I played Space Invaders, an incredibly short game, not helped by the fact the kids watching at the time were heckling me. Pac-Man proved so popular, the next weekend when I visited the skating rink, there was a second Pac-Man machine in an attempt to cut down the line of kids waiting to play. If my father and grandparents thought I was spending too much time thinking about Space Invaders, my devotion to Pac-Man certainly must have concerned them. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, I was definitely devoted to action figures. 
thanks in no small part to the phenomenon that was Star Wars. The truth of the matter is, I now desired a Pac-Man lunchbox and school folders, drinking glasses, and those wind-up Tomy Pac-Man toys. I even managed to obtain a book at the local gas station of all places that promised me I would become a better Pac-Man player. It didn't, but I can't really fault the book for that. I just could not grasp at that time the idea of the patterns used by the game. It was Donkey Kong which was the next arcade game that caught my attention. Although I actually ended up playing the officially licensed bootleg version first, which was Falcon's Crazy Kong. I believe I mentioned that in the Donkey Kong episode of the podcast. I was able to play Donkey Kong proper thanks to games people play just a few short weeks later. My father, by the way, didn't even tell me where we were headed that night. It was all a complete surprise, to say the very least. And after stepping in the door, I was rushing through that arcade, truly like a kid in an electronic candy store. What I remember most about that night was the overwhelming sense of awe at the many brand new games I had a chance to play. Galaga, Asteroids Deluxe, Battlezone, Super Cobra, and Zaxxon to name just a few. I can also recall the frightening feeling when I walked past the Berserk cabinet and it said out loud, The humanoid must not escape. The humanoid Friends, I truly jumped when I heard that Cylon-like speech. Was it possible? Could this arcade game actually be talking to me? I most certainly thought that was the case when I left the arcade, before my father explained to me that the game was programmed to say that. That first trip to games people play also showed me a few other video games that had something to say. Wizard of War, Gorf, Space Avenger, and Crazy Climber. It was Taito's Crazy Climber that was the game that would earn the lion's share of my quarters. Partly because of the truly bizarre control scheme of using two joysticks to simulate your left and right hands as you attempted to help Crazy Climber scale a skyscraper. I was helped a bit by an employee that worked there who patiently explained to me how to work the controls in tandem. I wasn't setting any high scores that night and I could have cared less. All that mattered was getting high enough up that digital skyscraper to see King Kong beating his chest and attempting to throw a punch at me. I can also remember the stress of finding myself stuck in spots in Crazy Climber, where I couldn't ascend further because of windows that had shut. Watching in growing horror as the windows where my hands were positioned slowly closed and my digital avatar fell to his death. Much like my encounters with Space Invaders and Pac-Man, as well as Donkey Kong, Crazy Climber was all I could think of. I even managed to create a version of it on the playground at school. This is something we would do with Donkey Kong as well. The rules with the Crazy Climber live-action game was that after drawing a building with chalk, you had to jump to the open window spots. Plus, dodgeballs were used to simulate the dropped bottles, pots, and cans from the game. This real-life game of Crazy Climber lasted for about a week until a fellow student, after jumping, lost their footing because she landed on a dodgeball under her foot and twisted her ankle. Games People Play would manage to last until the summer of 1983. By the time it closed its doors, it had begun to carry pinball tables and even managed to construct a miniature golf course behind the building. The pinball table I remember most fondly was 1981's Mars God of War by Gottlieb. 
The pinball table itself was designed by John Burris, who you fans of the Silver Ball might know also worked on the likes of Buck Rogers, and along with Shing Lam designed the Black Hole Table. Mars God of War was the first Gottlieb pinball table to feature speech, which is in fact what first attracted me to it in the first place. Well, that and the futuristic artwork provided by David Moore. Here's a fun fact. Mars God of War had the model number bum 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 666. There were many games that I first encountered at that electronic Xanadu. Zookeeper, Frenzy, Star Castle, Space Duel, and Super Zaxxon to pick a couple. The reason that games people play through in the towel was due to a bigger arcade opening up down the street in 1982. Yeah, you guessed it, it was Showbiz Pizza. While Games People Play was my first arcade experience and is quite fondly remembered, it pales compared to the cherished memories I have of Showbiz Pizza, which of course I talk about on the podcast all the time, as well as the episode dedicated to it. For what it's worth, the building that Games People Play was located in still stands and is now a popular Asian restaurant. While you can't play video games there, at the very least you can get a good meal. And if you listen very, very closely while you're eating, you might hear the excited cries of joy of a nine-year-old boy from the past who had walked into an electronic Xanadu. And now, these messages. Everyone's counting on me. If I can't stop them, who will? Who will? Who will? Introducing Battlezone, the arcade hit that's now an exciting new home game from Atari. The joystick puts you in control of your own tank. The radar screen helps you seek out the enemy. The action's so real, you just might forget it's a game. Battlezone, only from Atari. To entertain, to educate, to simplify. To Atari! If yours is a house divided, half the family playing board games and half playing arcade video games, then come together and play Arcade Mania, the game that combines arcade speed with board game strategy. And everyone plays every play. You plan your moves, play your cards, and score points by dodging UFOs, battling aliens, intercepting missiles, or defeating serpents. So get arcade speed with board game strategy in Arcade Mania from Milton Bradley. wrap everything up, I feel like I should point out something about games people play. The first thing is, I always was under the impression that this was a local arcade. What I mean is, I just assumed that it was only located in northwest Arkansas. It turns out, that is not true. I found out, thanks to a retroist article that I did many, many years ago, sharing photographs of the sad fates of some of the arcade games of our youth. In this particular case, it was an abandoned arcade with a few cabinets, like Atari's Star Wars arcade game. 
standing as silent witnesses to the glory that was once housed there. Worst of all, many of the games had been vandalized, and in the case of the Star Wars cabinet, it had been set on fire. A heartbreaking image for any of us that cherish video games and the golden age of arcades. Anyway, in the background of one of the photographs, there was a Games People Play sign, just propped up against fencing, visible through a window. On that sign, it read Games People Play, in the exact lettering, I should add, of the sign that I remember from the arcade in my neck of the woods. In addition, a couple of years later, I saw another news program doing a report at a local arcade. And you guessed it, this too was a Games People Play, with yet again that same red sign with yellow lettering. I suppose it could all just be a coincidence, but I don't think so. I believe now that it was obviously a franchise. Let me know if you had a Games People Play that you remember from your youth. I tell you, I would give almost anything to be able to travel back in time and just take hundreds and hundreds of photographs of both showbiz pizza and games people play. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. I know it's far shorter than your standard show, but as I mentioned at the beginning of it, you should think of this as a bonus episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you are all enjoying this second season of the podcast. I know I'm no expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games, and I enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes, and I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library, a result of switching from the Retroist site to the pop culture Retrorama one. You can check out all manner of our retro daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify and Stitcher. At least with that last one it should be as I've submitted the podcast once again. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and review to help us find new listeners? If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. I have an Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore, that you can visit for photographs and videos of the arcade that I used to work at before it was temporarily closed due to COVID-19, of course. That is the Arcadia Retrocade. You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook. Or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. It's there that I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. And in fact, on Sundays now, at 9pm Central Time, we host a watch party on the Diary Facebook page. So I hope you can join us. I, of course, want to thank the Retroist. For over a decade, the Retroist has provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist support. Until next week, friends, why not listen to a clip of the subject of the next show? This has been a Pop Culture Retro-Rama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Taito, Nintendo, Namco, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. 
All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only and are not intended to infringe. It stinks! End of line.